You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Environmental. Energy, water, land. How much land do you have? Are you dedicating that to a preserve? How about water? What's your water usage? What's your energy usage? Are you using renewables? How many cars do you have? How much gas do you use? Environmental, E. That score will go down if you don't have a house that has solar panels, if you're a company that engages at all with dirty fuels. Social justice, how woke are you? Have you told your people to be less white? Are you anti-police? Is it okay to uh, protest and march and burn down cities for BLM, but definitely not, you know, because you are against the vaccine mandates? Then great, you're gonna do great on social justice scores. And governance, your business. How many women do you employ? How many minorities? Who's on the board of directors? Here's the great thing. When it comes to stakeholder capitalism, it's not shareholder, it's not you. It's the stakeholders. It's the government, the governments of the world, the banks, and the businesses. But you know how they have a board of directors? Yeah, the government has what in uh, ESG land is called a golden stake. So even after all of this, if the company says, yeah, but we're not going to do that. that, that's just not good for us. The golden stake can be driven through their heads by the government, and they will say, no, you are doing this. That's ESG. Now, that's the lever that they are using, as Janet Yellen just mentioned. ESG, environmental, socialist, uh, social, and governance. Basically, if a bank or a company doesn't meet the standards of those three metrics, then they're giving a load grade that looks similar to a credit score. Credit doesn't matter. How are you in the, on the environment? How are you with women's issues? What happens when you get a low or failing credit rating? Well, you're locked out because that's not the direction the world is going. And so you become a risk to the bank and to the community. So will this affect you? I want to show you something. We were recently given this screenshot from somebody that has assets at Merrill Lynch. They now have been assigned an ESG score of 4.7. Now imagine if you got an email from a bank or an insurance company, maybe even your employer, stating that your credit score had dropped to 470. And welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Imagine if your credit score dropped to 470 and your bank was letting you know that. And maybe just maybe you were preparing to buy a house, planning to buy a house, hoping to buy a house or a car or take out a business loan to start a business or pay off some medical debt maybe with a personal loan. And now imagine with a credit score of 470, what kind of terms are you going to get? What kind of an interest rate are you going to get? What kind of limit are you going to have for borrowing? Are you going to be able to borrow anything for that matter? Probably not 
What does that do to your outlook, to your plans? What does that do for everybody else who is able to borrow much more at favorable terms? It's a sobering thought. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show for episode 312. Today's January 25th, 2022. And for those unfamiliar, that was Glenn Beck at the top of the episode in a tweet from January 20th of this year explaining ESG scores. And is it just me or does the ESG score sound an awful lot like the Chinese social credit score? Where does it end? Well, it doesn't end until we say, that's enough. We're not playing this game. So I propose we continue on with uh, creating a parallel economy, if at all possible. And maybe it's for the best. Maybe the ESG being tied into our ability to borrow money will help us to not be debtors. Maybe we will <laughs> stop borrowing money and save. There's a novel concept. Neither a borrower nor a lender be save up to buy what it is that you need. That's what I'm trying to teach my sons. Now I realize that the principle has its limits. In an emergency, and I'm also teaching my sons this, in an emergency, if it's a question of either borrowing money and paying medical bills, paying your mortgage, paying your rent, paying for necessities, getting transportation that's going to enable you to get to work and get to church and get to the grocery store, or not living, well then your options are pretty limited. And that's where this ESG score business gets spooky. Is it possible that you have an ESG score tied to individuals, making it harder for them to get a job, keep a job, get a contract, keep a contract. That's where it gets a bit scary. But I think, again, we're going to need to create that parallel economy we've been talking about for a couple of years in earnest. If we were already working on it, we need to work harder, be more diligent. And if we weren't working on it, if we weren't on board with that, this should be a wake-up call. But today's episode is not first and foremost about that. I want to share with you, as promised in yesterday's episode, a bit more about Dan Carlin's book, The End is Always Near, Apocalyptic Moments from the Bronze, Bronze Age, rather, Collapse to Nuclear Near Misses. His release date for this book was October 29th, 2019, and one wonders in reading it whether he knew something that the rest of us didn't at that point about COVID being just around the bend. He talks at various points about the potential for a pandemic and what would that do? And also, is it maybe for the best if we dial everything back as far as our consumption, as far as our use of natural resources, our productivity as a species is maybe for the best if a whole lot of us just stop having children and decrease Earth's population 
decrease our carbon footprint as a species. Is that maybe for the best? He speculates on a lot of points that are not original to him, of course. You can't exactly lay it at his feet as though he came up with those questions. But he is a graduate, Dan Carlin is, of the University of Boulder. For those more familiar with Colorado, you will know that Boulder, Colorado is one of the hotbeds in the state of Colorado of progressivism, liberalism, not in the classical sense, but in the let's tilt ever closer towards leftist totalitarianism. (laughs) Boulder is where our governor, Jared Polis, comes from. Boulder is not representative of most of the rest of the state, but Boulder is where Dan Carlin got his college education. He now lives in Oregon. From what I've read in his bio, he is, for those of you who have ever heard of the Hardcore History podcast, he's the host of that podcast and a couple of others that are related. One is called Common Sense. I'm not familiar with that one, but it is probably more of just a uh, general commentary, I would guess, trying to separate that out from strictly historical topics. But this book, The End is Always Near, is a combination of both, and we should expect nothing less from historians in our day. History is not just history. It can't afford to be just history. It has to always answer the question of, why should I care? As with all writing, why should I care about this story you're telling me from the past? What does this have to do with me? What relevance does this have to my life? What lessons am I supposed to learn? What do I do with this information? And if the answer to those questions is that there's nothing to do with this information, it's entirely irrelevant to you, why are you reading it? Why do you care? Why would you care? Why should you care? Of course you shouldn't care. You should shut the book and be interested in something else. Move on. Unfortunately, what... Our education system, including but not limited to universities in Boulder, Colorado, has taught young people who then become adults in this country is that what's most important right now is saving the planet from us. And I would encourage anybody who's of that mindset that we need to decrease our population, decrease our carbon footprint, stop having children, stop getting married, stop being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it. Check out Charles C. Mann's history, 1491 and 1493, and his excellent book, The Wizard and the Prophet, about William Vogt and Norman Borlaug, for a compare and contrast of two very very different responses, very different reactions to the question of limited carrying capacity. On the one hand, we can say we're not providing for everybody as we ought to, therefore we should have fewer of everybody. Less of everything means we should have fewer of everybody. And that is the story of William Vogt going around the world trying to tell countries like China that they should 
work diligently to curb population growth, telling India they should work hard to get people to have fewer children, sterilize people, encourage people to get themselves sterilized, spay and neuter your pets, as Bob Barker would say. That's basically the messaging that William Vogt was going around to third world countries and communicating to their governments, encouraging third world countries that wanted to be like the prosperous, wealthy, powerful West to give their populations, particularly the lower classes of their populations, the Bob Barker treatment. On the other hand, you have Norman Borlaug, who is the son of farmers, makes him a little bit more of a salt-of-the-earth type character in my mind. I come from centuries of farmers on my father's side. You have Norman Borlaug approaching the problem of limited carrying capacity from the opposite perspective. How do we increase the carrying capacity? By technology, by innovation, by producing better more sturdy, more resilient varieties, higher yield varieties of staple foods, staple crops, wheats and barleys and such like that. How do we export the best farming practices, the best agricultural technology to countries whose populations are living on starvation rations? That was Norman Borlaug's approach and go figure as the son of farmers. But the end is always near. <clears throat> it reminds me of Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman's book, Gumption, I read a few years back, and I was really hoping that the actor who plays the archetypal conservative libertarian, leave me alone, character in Parks and Recreation, Ron Swanson, was himself a conservative. It would have been delightful if Nick Offerman were a conservative. And then you read his book, Gumption, and you find out he is very much not. I think that his portrayal of Ron Swanson is funny in a very, very, very different way to the big city, big government types that he hobnobs with more regularly. I think that the blue state folks who watch Parks and Rec find Ron Swanson hilarious because they think he is such a great caricature of all the idiot conservatives, all the small government types who don't know anything. And meanwhile, the red state folks who watch Parks and Rec a little bit, like myself, look at Ron Swanson and we think, oh, that's fantastic. Finally, we get some representation. No, Ron Swanson's right. That guy, <laughs> that guy is right. It's a little bit exaggerated, of course, because it's comedy. But Dan Carlin is obviously not a conservative. I think good historians who are worth their salt should be conservatives. Otherwise, why are you studying history? If history is just a enterprise where you pick at and pick apart and find fault with 
everybody who's ever existed prior to you, like they're all idiots and you've got it all figured out and we're on the quote unquote right side of history. Well, then that just sounds like a whole lot of arrogance and pretension. A much better way to approach history is to say, I have something to learn from these folks. And especially if I can learn from the folks who themselves approached their own history with humility, I will learn a great deal exponentially more. And yet, what I find in The End is Always Near is a seemingly veiled embrace of anti-Americanism and anti-Western sentiment and anti-capitalism, anti-free market, anti-free market uh, individuality, anti-free market nationalism. It's perhaps my imagination, and it's always hard with popular books by well-known figures, by popular figures. It's always hard to know when what you're reading at some points is their genuine feelings on the thing or when it's pandering to the audience that they think is there. What do I need to say in order for this to get through the publishing house? In order for this to be picked up and put on bookshelves by the big box stores in order for them to get on board because they want a higher ESG score. What do I have to put in this publisher's summary? What do I have to put in my foreword? What do I have to put in each of these chapters, sprinkling it in here and there? But then again, who knows? It's a chicken and egg question. At the end of the day, the very simple question that needs to be answered is, is it true? <clears throat> is what you're saying true? Does it comport with reality? Is it sensible? Is it helpful? Or who does it help? Is it helping the folks who are on the side of the good and the true? Or is it helping nefarious types? Is this well-informed? Or is this a bit of bandwagon jumping and virtue signaling, pretending at elegance, pretending at erudition? pretending at sophistication and understanding. I did not love The End is Always Near. I've had folks recommend to me Hardcore History. Maybe the podcast is better, but I did not love this book, in part because it felt a bit too much like the party line for the leftist intelligentsia, the intellectuals. It felt a bit too much like the party line. And I think I disliked this book for the same reason that I dislike Will Durant's The Story of Civilization, which Dan Carlin refers to favorably in positive terms. He thinks well of it. That tells me quite a lot about what to expect from his treatment of history, as he pulls various threads, various themes in history, I should expect that he will come from a similar place and end up in a similar place to Will Durant. And sure enough, he does. 
I don't think this is the best type of history. I think this is much more in the vein of Gumption by Nick Offerman. But that said, some positive things from the book, some positive things that I did like. I did like that the question of is the world coming to an end was treated, even though I disagree with a number of Dan Carlin's assumptions. I do like that he goes to that place of, is the end near? Well, the end is always near. And to support that thesis, he looks at the rise and fall of various high-powered, superpower cultures throughout history. Hey, let's talk about the Assyrians. Hey, let's talk about the Romans. They were the big kid on the block that everybody else was afraid of in their day. And at a certain point, they collapsed. And someone else came in and became the new superpower and took over and spoiled their cities and sacked their capital. So also, as cultures are in decline, it's all too common as they've thought of themselves as being the center of the universe, the center of the world. They end up thinking that as their culture is collapsing, that means that the whole world is collapsing. And I think we see this in America as well. We think that the decline and fall of the American empire, to borrow and adapt Gibbon's rise and fall of the Roman empire, we think that the decline and fall of the American empire means the end of the world. We see evidence of decay, cultural rot in our own society, And we extrapolate from that, that the world is ending, but the world is not ending just because America is imploding in on itself. We have become decadent like many superpower cultures before us. And I say cultures because there's more to American power, far more than us having the strongest military, the best technology that comes and goes that is not to be assumed and presumed, particularly right now. But the strength of America is in our ability to export our ideas and our values and our culture and our outlook and our perspective and our ethos. Losing that is what spells the end for us. And as we see that going away, going the way of the dodo, that's when we start to realize however strong our military is, is a moot point. Do we have credibility? Do we have staying power? Not do people fear us, but do people respect us? Cultures that rule and influence on fear, first and foremost, don't have staying power. They are a cart full of produce with a bad wheel. And it's just a matter of time. If you don't get that wheel fixed, it's going to come off. And your cart will be there in the road or on the side of it. And all that produce will go into somebody else's carts or the wild animals will come and pick it. But looking at how much produce goes in the cart is 
the shiny object that we get distracted by. What we should be looking at is how are the axles? How are the wheels? Is this thing going to make it down the road much farther? And are we doing the maintenance on it? Or is the maintenance we're doing <clears throat> kind of like those headlines I saw here a few months ago about a defense contractor being prosecuted for having falsified integrity inspection reports for the hulls of ships and submarines for decades, collecting these big fat paychecks on the basis of having tested the integrity of our ships, you then find out he was making those reports up. He was falsifying those reports to collect an easy paycheck. And apparently the people who should have been double-checking his work, who's watching the watchers, they were just pencil-whipping as well. When we become so conceited that we think it's always going to be like this because it's always been like this, that's when the wheel on the wagon, and it only takes one. If your wagon was designed to run on four wheels, all of a sudden one pops off. That's because there was stress on that one wheel and it wasn't maintained. And that wagon will not go on three wheels when it was designed to go on four. Normalization of deviance is something I find in Dan Carlin's book here. And when I say normalization of deviance, what I mean is Dan Carlin normalizes the post-truth, post-modern approach to the way that we're maintaining, or more to the point, not maintaining the wheels on our wagon, our cultural wagon. He normalizes it by doing the very subjective post-truth thing of deconstructing our attitude towards various things. Now, that's not all he does. And again, I want to be clear, some things that I like. I like that he asks a question in chapter two about how tough are various cultures and various people and various generations of people and are some tougher than others? And how do you quantify that? Is it true that hard times make for strong men and strong men make for good times and good times make weak men and weak men make hard times. Is it true that history is cyclical like that? The greatest generation is thought to be tougher than our generation, more resilient than our generation. They survived the Great Depression, and then they went off to war against Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany, and they came back, and they had families, they raised families, they had children, they built this country up on the fact that we lent money to Europe to rebuild itself, and we called the shots around the globe. We got favorable trade terms around the globe. We dictated terms to everybody except for the communist countries. And for some odd reason, Dan Carlin decides to take a bit of a detour from exploring that question to talking about the prevalence of beating children 
throughout history. How most times in places throughout history, it's been acceptable to beat children. And we're not talking just a swat on the rear. We're not talking about discipline. We're talking about just an outright abject beating of children when they misbehave or act other than what we want them to act like. And at that point, and every point like that throughout this book, and all books like it, we should recognize that we're being sold something. We're being sold a kind of stubborn defense of our own decadence, our own departure from the truth. For one thing, it doesn't naturally follow that just because some people at all times throughout history have beaten and abused their children, that that means that is what all people in all those times were doing when they disciplined their children. Beating your child, abusing your child is not the same thing as disciplining your child. But discipline is necessary to build your child up. Abusing your child is breaking your child down for selfish purposes. You can't control your emotions, and so you take it out on your child. You don't care what impact it has on them as long as you feel better. Disciplining your child is something strategic and intentional, and it's designed to prepare them to adult someday. Plain and simple. Disciplining your child may include but not be limited to corporal punishment. Is my three-year-old going to be able to understand when I explain at length the same thing that I am telling my 13-year-old about here are the rules, here are the expectations, you didn't follow those, and now there are consequences? No. And my 13-year-old, do I need to give my 13-year-old a SWAT? Or can I just say, hey, there are certain privileges that get your attention when those are removed or modified. You seem to care more about playing video games and computer games and watching YouTube than you do about taking care of your chores or your schoolwork or treating your siblings with respect or coming when your mother calls for you or abiding by our house rules. And to help you correct that, and remember the expectations and your responsibilities. We're going to say you can't play on the Oculus Quest and the Xbox and the computer tomorrow or for this week or whatever. But my three-year-old isn't playing on the Xbox and the computer and the Oculus, so that doesn't work. And my three-year-old isn't going to understand my extended explanation they go wandering out into the street, and I've told them, no, there isn't necessarily going to be a second chance. It's not beating my child. It's not abusing my child to give my child a spanking. And yet, Dan Carlin, in his treatment of attitudes towards disciplining children, conflating it with abusing children throughout history, is doing a kind of marketing of the American approach to parenting. And it's at moments like that, at moments like when he goes later in the book to talk about atomic weaponry and firebombing and potential for a pandemic decreasing Earth's population, our need to use electricity to generate less electricity, 
produce less, to consume less, to decrease our population. It's in moments like those that he loses me because he's no longer talking about history. The book is advertised as history, and in those moments, he's propagandizing. And it's not necessary when you talk about these things to propagandize. But again, to pick on the disciplining of children issue, he makes reference to the saying, spare the rod, spoil the child, and how throughout history, in most places, most times, that's been taken to mean you have to beat your child. You have to abuse your child in order to get them to behave. And for that matter, we should conclude from a study, from a science, a pseudoscience, in my opinion, called psychohistory, that most people throughout history have been the victims of child abuse. Now, he equivocates and he goes back and forth. And so then at the end of it, you're not supposed to know what he really, truly believes, but it's kind of sloppy, quite honestly, pretty obvious what he thinks on that, given the weight, the emphasis, repetition, what he doesn't say. One can deduce reasonably that he is building up to the conclusion in your mind that we should take all of human history prior to our age with a very large grain of salt because all those people were abusing their children and all those children grew up to be adults who in turn had been abused, and so they abused their children. And now we come to our age where we read Dr. Spock, whose own son committed suicide, and who I think as much as anybody in the 20th century in America contributed to cultural rot. Mary Eberstadt's book, How the West Really Lost God, is helpful here. Because maybe, just maybe, we stopped getting married and having children and raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, training up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord because we were increasingly secular. And maybe we've become increasingly secular because we stopped getting married and having children and training up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Maybe it's both and instead of either or. And maybe... Dr. Spock telling parents, don't spank your child, you'll damage their self-esteem, fed directly into this chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis would call it, where we think that all people who lived before us were damaged psychologically. We come up with a rationalization for thinking ourselves better than they were, and we cherry-pick what lessons we learn from them to flatter ourselves And then if it all falls apart, if we destroy ourselves culturally, nationally, because of our self-indulgence, because of our decadence, that we've excused with intellectual rationalizations, patting one another on the back for ignoring this wobble in the wagon wheel, well, then we excuse ourselves by saying, well, all cultures come to an end eventually. Yes, and all people die eventually too, but that doesn't mean that you are... (laughs) innocent if you allow your child to starve when you could have gone to the grocery store and got them some good nutritious food. It doesn't mean that you're guiltless if you see your neighbor naked 
and homeless and hungry, and you tell them, be warmed and filled. Particularly when the policies of the left, the policies that places like Boulder try to impose on states like Colorado, which then in turn try to help impose on countries like the United States of America, which then in turn try to impose on the entire Western world and the whole world by extension through things like ESG scores, when that leads to incredible amounts of human suffering rather than human flourishing and oppression, not yet, but just wait, you'll see. We shrug and say, the end is always near. Sure beats the alternative, huh? But there again, you have to take this business with a grain of salt itself. Just like the historical revisionists who Dan Carlin excuses, because of course we're always revising history because we, we know so much more now. We have so much better data now. And yes, but we have so much worse presuppositions which make the data useless to us. Our ability to connect dots being broken means that having more dots does not solve the problem of comprehension. If anything, it maybe muddies the water because it gives you this false sense of confidence that we're getting it figured out. Are we getting it figured out? No, we can't. Because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And your whole endeavor is godless. By design, stubbornly, insistently. You do well to study the history of 100 years ago when people thought that innovation was going to make the world better and better and better and better through science and technology and math, transportation, communications, technologies, refrigeration, all these things were going to make it all better. This unbridled optimism, however, gave way to horror with World War I and World War II. And we're due. We're due for a World War III. And we see 39 by the reports I read yesterday, 39 Chinese warplanes flying into Taiwanese airspace. Taiwan had to scramble its own jets, activate its missile defense system. At the same time, the United States State Department says to citizens, men, women, and their children, families, American citizens in Ukraine, we can't get you out. We may send thousands of our own troops, 8,500 American troops are on standby, potentially being sent to Eastern Europe. We can't get you guys out. You're going to have to secure your own transportation. But we would highly advise you evacuate Ukraine because Russia could invade at any time and install a puppet regime. We are just about due. And Russia and China are going to push the envelope. And we will let them because they've promised an overwhelming and catastrophic reaction to any intervention by America or our NATO allies if we try to stop Russia from taking Ukraine or China from taking Taiwan they're going to let us have it so we will stand back stand back stand back stand back and they will push 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 until they reach too far by then they will have consolidated their earlier positions and they will be more entrenched and it will be more difficult to remove them from those entrenched positions. It will be more costly, not less costly. The more we defer that cost, kick it down the road, and then we will see what unbridled optimism about our new technologies turns into. It'll turn into horror when that ESG score 
is used by a communist Chinese, a totalitarian Russian and Chinese alliance, if they win that conflict, then we will be understanding. But I got to leave it there. That's all for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.